welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! Hear these words now from the book that we love. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If (coughs) If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. You can be seated. Yeah, so I'm going to do a little kind of two-part series um, in these two sermons that I'm preaching this summer. We're preaching uh, from the letters of Paul, doing something we don't normally do, which is kind of a little bit of a catch-all sermon series. So it's called Paul Pari, which you can guess who came up with that title was not me. It's Mr. Jim Anger. He's very proud of it, so don't make fun of it. Um, but we're doing kind of a catch-all series, Letters of Paul. And so as Jim preaches or as other people preach this summer, we're just picking passages uh, that, that stick out to us, that are on our heart, that are on our minds, and, and preaching on those. Uh, and so for me, uh, for these two sermons that I'm doing, I'm doing both sermons from, from the letter of 1 Corinthians, and they're both going to be about the church, the church, which is us, our congregation, us, the church. Big C, but also, but really more specifically, not the church worldwide, but the church little c, us, us, Liberty Church Collinswood. I'm going to preach two sermons about that. I'm excited uh, to do that with you here uh, this morning. So this is the first one, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So two years ago, uh, Carrie and I bought a house in Audubon. Some of you know that. Many of you have been there. Thank you to those that have, uh, in the last few weeks, dropped off meals to us with our newborn baby. That's very helpful. Thank you so much. I have some Tupperware downstairs if you're looking for some. That might be yours. Um, but we bought our house. It was an estate sale, uh, and the family that we purchased it, from, purchased it from had lived there since 1978. It was built in 1975. They had bought it just a few years later from the builder, and they had lived there since 1978. And you can imagine somebody that's lived in a house that long, uh, it needed a little updating. 
It was in great shape. The bones were good, solid structure. We loved the house, loved the layout of the house, loved the bedrooms and baths and all that kind of good stuff. Has central AC, which we're enjoying right now, but needed a lot of updating, needed a lot of updating, needed some fixing up. And one of the parts of the house that was maybe in the worst shape, there were several things that were not in great shape, but probably the thing that was in worst shape was the porch roof construction that goes over our, our back patio in our backyard. It was in pretty bad shape. It was clearly uh, like, a, a, like a Saturday weekend warrior type project. Uh, and the family that lived there before us just kind of went for it. Uh, wasn't, wasn't the most solid, uh, but it had also been there a long time. And it was in pretty bad shape. Uh, and I'll be honest, I didn't do anything to it at all for a long time. Just sort of like we enjoyed it, we sat under it, had some leaks, uh, but it still worked and was fine. Didn't repair it, didn't solidify it, but it continued to deteriorate over the two years that we've lived there uh, to the point where every now and then I'd be in the driveway, you know, and I would find a nail that had like popped out of the, of the roof. Um, and, and the holes were getting worse and it was just looking ratty. It was looking worse and worse and worse. And it was actually uh, this past spring, I forget the exact month, but I was in a consistory meeting, a meeting with our elders and deacons. We were downstairs in the fellowship hall and my phone vibrates and I, I look at it and my wife has sent me a text message with a picture of a, a big chunk of the roof of that had been ripped off by a gust of wind. I don't think there's any tornadoes. It's probably just a normal gust of wind. Ripped off a chunk of this roof and it was laying in our driveway. And my wife, who was pregnant at the time, went out there and dragged it you know, back into the yard so it wouldn't go down into the street or whatever. Um, it was not great. So it was in bad shape. It was falling apart. And it had gotten so bad by that point, obviously, that we just had to tear it down. It was just time to, to knock it down and have it rebuilt. So we had it rebuilt uh, just a couple of months ago. And I share that story, I share that illustration because the church in Corinth, the church that Paul is writing to here in 1 Corinthians, is in similar shape. It's a young church. Paul spent 18 months in the city of Corinth founding this congregation, and then he moved on. And it's only been about three or four years since he, since he planted this church, but the church is at a serious crossroad. It's at a crossroad where it either needs to be repaired, it needs to be fixed, or it's going to continue to deteriorate into utter disrepair. And to understand that, to understand what Paul is talking about in this passage and addressing specifically, you need to understand a little bit about the city of Corinth and the culture that was happening in the city of Corinth at that time. It was a Roman colony that was established in, in 44 BC. It was actually established, interestingly, on the top of the Greek city of Corinth that was there for decades beforehand, uh, that Rome had actually just leveled to the ground, more or less, and was empty for about for 100 or so years. It had laid in ruins, but Rome came back and built a Roman colony on top of those ruins. And the city, and one of the reasons they did this is because the city is very strategic. It's on this little strip of land that has ports on either side of it, and it controlled a lot of the trade routes that would go from Asia and into the Mediterranean uh, area, even, even to Rome. And ships would come in, into Corinth on either side in these two uh, major ports, these major harbors. So it was, a, it was an important center of commerce at this time when Paul was there. And unlike many cities in the area, it offered major upward social and economic mobility for its inhabitants. Because it was a newer city, and people had moved there to repopulate it, there wasn't generations and generations and generations of like wealth and hierarchy. So it was kind of a, a scrappy up-and-coming city in some ways, and it attracted a lot of people that were ambitious, a lot of people that were entrepreneurial, people that wanted uh, to make a way for themselves. And it became a very wealthy city. 
One scholar put it this way, that in Corinth, there was a zeal to attain public status, to promote one's own honor, and to secure power. Crucial for any success and status in this culture was attaining the patronage of powerful persons and bestowing benefaction on others to establish an array of influential friends and clients, exerting political enmity to ostracize opponents and employing skillful oratory to persuade others in any assembly. And helpfully, he goes on to then say this, to use terms from American culture, schmoozing, massaging a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's back, dragging rivals' names through the mud, etc., etc. So that gives you a little picture of what this city looked like with this young church that was there in the middle of it. And unfortunately, over those three, or four, three to five years that Paul was away, the culture, especially the competitive individualism, that, that, that spirit of competitive individualism that was in the culture, had spilled into the community, had seeped into the young community of faith. And if you were to read the whole letter of 1 Corinthians in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes this, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. So Paul had received a report that things were not going well, that there was some division, that there were some internal power struggles that were happening. And the way that this looked, and you'll see this throughout the letter, this is what scholars believe their best take on what they think was happening, because it's not 100% clear, uh, but, it, but it seems to be true, is that there were rival leaders and rival splinter groups that had emerged in this congregation of maybe 200 people or so. And most likely, these were wealthy hosts of different house churches that were collecting followers under them, so to speak. So if you think about this, all the way back in the first century, they did not have buildings like this, like Holy Trinity, a beautiful space where we can seat, you know, 200 plus people in the sanctuary. So back then, there was no public gathering place like this in these uh, cities for, for the church, the young church, to meet in. So they would meet in people's homes. Obviously, even for the most mega wealthy, you can only fit so many people under a roof. And so they would meet in several different homes. There's maybe four or five homes that, that people were meeting in, in the city of Corinth. So you had these hosts that had people uh, meeting in their homes, and they were kind of beginning to splinter off and to have little sects, little cliques, little groups that they were gathering up underneath them. And it might have looked something like this. This is completely fictional. You might, you might have heard this. Hey, I go to Oliver's house church and we eat food sacrificed to idols because we know the idols are really not gods. They're really nothing at all. Some people think that, but we know better. Well, hey, I go to Amelia's house church and we follow Apollos' teaching and we all have the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues because you know what? That's the most spiritual gift. All those other gifts are kind of lame. Those are for losers. But at our house church, we all speak in tongues. It's the most important. It's the highest one. And someone else might say, well, I'm a member at Sophia's and things are fine there, but have you heard about George's house church? There's somebody there who's sleeping with his stepmom. That's not good. And see, there's these rival groups that were, that were there, and Paul is writing this letter to address some of these issues. I just mentioned three there. The food sacrifice to idols, sexual morality, and spiritual gifts. Paul addresses some of those theological concerns in this letter later, which we're not going to look at this morning. But in this passage, he's addressing some of those leaders that are kind of leading these little house church rival movements. And he wants to remind the Corinthian church of their identity, their identity as God's church. He wants them to remember who they are and maybe even more importantly, whose they are before it's too late. 
to use an il another illustration, it's like a, a piece of fabric or like a shirt. Um, I've had some shirts like since college or whatever, and like eventually the elbows like wear out and it just like splits open because the fabric's just gotten so thin, right? It's just been stressed over so many years. The threads have gotten pulled apart so much. It's at that point where it either needs mending or it's just going to tear apart. And that's where the church is at at this point when Paul writes this letter. And so he addresses the Corinthians issue head on here. And he does it in the first part of this passage, which I want to get through quickly, with this illustration of the church as God's field, verses 5 through 9. And what he's trying to do here is undermine a little bit those leaders who, have, who are thinking too highly of themselves or the people that go to their churches who are thinking too highly of those hosts. And he wants to kind of undercut that a little bit. And I want to look at these verses here for just a moment before we dig into the rest of the passage. So look at these verses 5 to 9 and what Paul teaches here. First of all, he says that ministers and church leaders are servants. They're just servants. It's not about status. It's not about power. It's about service. Look back at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered. Paul is saying, look, I planted this congregation. Apollos, who was another worker who came behind Paul, who did more work there before like, the local leaders kind of took over. He's saying, even for us, we're just a plowboy and a waterboy. We are nothing important. We are not special. We were just doing what God assigned us to do. We're nobodies. And therefore, by implication, the leaders that were there currently also are not special. And he said, or at least not worth the veneration that they're putting on them. Ministers and church leaders are also on the same team. They shouldn't be in competition with one another. It actually doesn't make sense for them to even be in competition or for these house churches to be splintered in this way. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. They're one. The work of the one who waters, the work of the one who plants in a single field, if you imagine for a moment, whether it's a vineyard or a field of corn or whatever, some farm, the work that those two individuals are doing to work is, this, is part of one agricultural project. It takes both of them for something to actually happen. It would be futile if they didn't have one another. And the imagery, actually, it's very interesting of God's people being planted by God himself is actually an Old Testament image. It's all throughout the Old Testament especially Isaiah 5. I don't want to read from it this morning, but God gives this beautiful illustration at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 5 of taking this field and removing rocks and building a wall and building a tower and planting Israel as, as a choice vine in this vineyard and waiting for Israel to develop these, these grapes for harvest. And there's this image of God as a, as a vine dresser, as one who plants his people. It's a beautiful image. I jumped ahead a little bit. I'm sorry. It's still a great image. Keep that in mind. I want to go back for one second to the leaders real fast. I skipped over verse 9, which I wanted to touch on real quick. Verse 9, when Paul's also talking about the leaders being on the same team, he says, we are God's fellow workers. This isn't my favorite translation of this verse at the very beginning, 9a. There's a couple other translations. This is the ESV. We typically use the English Standard Version here. It's a great translation. It's wonderful. Um, but I love two other translations real quick that translate this slightly differently. The NRSV says, we are God's servants working together. And in the New English translation, we are co-workers belonging to God. What Paul is saying is that Paul and Apollos, the other ministers, other church leaders, other people, that they're under the authority of God. They're not 
peers. They're not God's co-workers. They're co-workers with each other under God. That they're not, they're not in charge. To use a different image, they're like, like if you take like the Eagles, like a football team, they're the players. Paul and Apollos are players on the field, but God is the owner and the GM and the coach. So they're not in competition with one another. They're actually on the same team. It doesn't make any sense for them to be in competition. So point three, and here's where it gets to what I skipped ahead to a second ago. God is the one who establishes and builds his church. Verse six and seven, you saw this as we read. It says, but God gave the growth, and only God gives the growth. It's his field. He owns the field, but he also controls the harvest. And I mentioned a minute ago the Old Testament imagery. It also recalls to mind, if you're familiar with the scriptures, it's okay if you're not. John chapter 15, when Jesus is with his disciples, he prays, or or he's talking with them before he prays, before he goes to the cross, and he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, apart from me, you can do nothing. God is the life force. He's the one who brings the growth. It's not Paul, it's not Apollos, it's not my made-up Oliver or Amelia or Sophia or George or any other leader in the church, but it's God himself. So Paul, the first part of this, he just dives straight in and addresses this rival, these rivalries, this division that's happening because of these leaders. And you might be thinking, number one, are you still in the introduction? Yes. Number two, you might be thinking, hey, Eric, we love you and Jim. We love our consistory. Our elders and deacons are awesome. Uh, but there's no rivalries in our congregation around leadership. And I would agree. I've never heard anybody say, I'm of, I'm of Eric, and, 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 and I'm of, you know, Blake, and I'm of whatever, you know. I'm of Jim. No, I've never heard anybody say that, which is great, by God's grace. And so we don't have any schisms or cliques in our church caused by wealthy elitist leaders or by some sort of pastoral favoritism. However, one of the reasons I picked this passage this morning is that I do think we have some points of contention in our church about different things. Things like political ideologies, both on the right and on the left. Things like cultural and ethnic differences. Things like ministry preferences. And things like theological disagreements. And so in the rest of this passage, and this is where I want to spend, slow down just a little bit. I know I went really quickly through that first metaphor of God's field. I want to slow down a little bit and look at verses 10 to 17 in these two images that, God, that Paul gives here of God's building and God's temple. And in these two sections, what Paul does, helpfully I think for us and beneficially for us, is that he lays out five points of what a theocentric and biblical ecclesiology looks like. And what does that mean? Those are big words. They are. Try to fit them in this week somewhere. At your work, in just a casual conversation with a neighbor. Ecclesiology, just slide that in somewhere. Theocentric and biblical ecclesiology. Those are the big words. What does that mean? Paul is laying out here a doctrine or a theology of what the church is. Ecclesiology, ecclesia is the Greek word. He's laying down what the church is, not based on the Corinthians' culture of power and status, which had seeped in, but instead based on God himself, based on the gospel, based on the scriptures. And I think there is something, maybe in that first section, there's not quite as much for us to take away, at least right now, though, these, though that's a helpful passage for me as a minister, as a newly ordained minister even, to remember, like, oh, I'm actually not that special. Good to know. That's helpful to remember. But in these last two things, I think there's a lot for us as a church, as a congregation here in the summer of 2021 to consider. So from here, what I want to do is look at these five points, and we'll go through them fairly quickly, I promise, but these five points 
of theocentric and biblical ecclesiology that Paul lays out. All right, first one, after a sip of water. The first one, Jesus is the foundation of God's church. Jesus is the foundation of God's church. Verse 11, Paul makes this very clear. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Doesn't get much more straight up than that. He just names it. There it is. Jesus is the foundation of God's church. And in some ways, this is subversive to the Corinthians culture. Remember all that I just said about power and status, about how they are uh, a group of people in this city that had seeped into the church, people who cherished success, people who loved winners. Well, Jesus, as a historical figure, in many ways, is the opposite of that. Jesus was not a wealthy, powerful, aristocratic leader who had this huge house, huge following, or military privileges, or privileges of Roman citizenship. Rather, he was poor. He was Jewish. He was a carpenter. The scriptures say that he had no place to lay his head. He didn't own a house at all. And he was crucified at the hands of the Roman government in a, not an important city in, of, of, of the Roman Empire, but a backwater providence of Judea. Jesus is not that impressive. And maybe the Corinthian church was tempted to make the foundation of who they were, their identity, something other, or maybe Jesus plus, to make it a little bit more palatable, a little bit more exciting. Imagine being one of those influential leaders who had a house church in their house out in the Agora, out in the marketplace there in Corinth in the first century. And maybe they're chatting, chatting it up with a buddy who is a follower of Athena, the Greek goddess of war. And maybe this friend says, hey, I've heard something about this Jesus. You have a church in your house and you worship. Uh, what, what's, what's the deal with this, with this God? You know, who, who, who is he and why is he so special? You might be tempted to, to fudge it a little bit. Oh man, this guy worships like the goddess of war. That's pretty awesome. Like Jesus was crucified by the Romans. This, this isn't good. This doesn't seem, seem very attractive. You might be tempted to add to that foundation in some way. Maybe add something like scientific knowledge or wisdom or contemporary religious experience or other things. And none of those things are bad, but none of those things can be on par with Jesus. He is the foundation. They can't be alongside But Paul is telling them, and we should remember, that we must keep the good news of Jesus crucified and resurrected for the salvation of sinners and the redemption of all things, the main thing. That's the main thing. Jesus is the foundation of the church. And second, the people of God are called to continue construction. Do you notice this in verse 10? That this building is not a a finished product, but it's actually a building in process. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. That the, the, the work goes on. And that makes sense, right? If Paul laid a foundation, maybe Apollos came along and built up a little bit more of this congregation into who they are, that there's still work to be done. Do any of you live in a house that's only a foundation? Okay, I don't see any hands. Online hands? No. Okay, right? You need more. There needs to be walls, there needs to be flooring, there needs to be a ceiling for it to be habitable. And so for a church, for a local congregation, a local body, Paul has laid the foundation in Corinth of Jesus and Jesus alone, but there's more to be done. There's more work to be done to build up the body to maturity, to build up the building so that it's habitable and healthy for the work that it's intended to do. And you might be thinking, hey, that sounds great. Don't we give and pay you to do that? 
Yes, but this is not about vocational or professional ministers or, or only ordained leaders. But Paul, actually, if you look at his other letters, has a much bigger vision of who are to be the ones involved in this work. In Ephesians, this is another verse that I was tempted to preach on this morning, but I chose the Corinthian ones instead. In Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, Paul writes this, and he, referring to God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. What is Paul saying there? Hey, God gave these leaders that have titles and like positions, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, could equate that maybe now to ministers, elders, deacons, home meeting leaders, whatever. These leadership titles, God gave those for what purpose? To equip the saints, to equip God's people for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That it's, this is a work that we all do. We all are called to continue construction and to make sure our construction is on the foundation of Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's Paul's third point, that the people of God should construct carefully and they should do so with good materials. The end of verse 10, we just read the beginning. The end of verse 10, let each one take care how he builds upon it. And in many ways, this is the main point of this unit. And what Paul is trying to communicate in this building metaphor is that, that we should be careful how we build. One scholar put it this way, the church can only add what the foundation will bear. It must not exceed the limits or introduce confusions that would change the character of the building so as to threaten its eventual collapse. The church must use fit materials and follow the plans of the architect, who is God, not Paul. Paul's the builder, but God is the architect. In other words, the, the superstructure, the structure that's built on top of the foundation, must match the character of the foundation, which is Jesus. And the Corinthians, what Paul is saying, they were building a superstructure that did not match. The structure they were building was based on power and status and success and these Corinthian values, not on gospel, biblical values of love and humility that Jesus had. And so therefore the building was being built crooked. It was being built in an unstable way. It would not withstand long term. And fourth, Paul says, God will judge what is built upon the foundation. This is maybe the most sobering part of this passage, 12 to 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, let each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. God's going to judge what we build. I brought a little illustration. I'm not normally an illustrations guy, so if this is bad, don't make fun of me. Not normally an illustrations guy. I brought something here this morning. I don't know if you guys can see this. Do you guys know what this is here? This little baggie? Now, if you were digging in a... Uh, you know, out in the yard or something, and you found this, you, your heart would skip a beat. You'd be like, oh, what is that? Is that gold? No, it's not. This is called iron pyrite, which is also known as fool's gold. Fool's gold, iron pyrite. I'll leave this right here if anybody wants to look at it later. Um, 
it looks like gold, but it is not. And it's actually quite simple for someone. You don't have to be an expert to be able to tell the difference. You can't necessarily tell just by looking at it, but there's a few simple tests that quickly expose it and show that it is not a valuable material. It is not gold, but it's actually a pretty worthless one. I got this for $5, this whole bag. If that was gold, it'd be worth much more. And a couple of those tests, if you poke fool's gold, it will flake or crumble. If you poke a, a, a chunk of real gold and you press it hard, it'll actually indent a little bit. Gold, real gold is soft. If you were to scratch it on a surface, this pyrite will leave a dark green or a black streak, but gold would leave a golden yellow one. And if you were to heat this with fire, it would smoke a little bit and it would smell bad. It would produce a foul odor. But if you were to heat gold, unless you heat it all the way to the point where it's melting, which probably not going to do that in your house with like a lighter. If you heat gold, it's going to do nothing. It's unfazed. It can withstand the fire. And this is Paul's point. that The same is true for the church. The things that we use, the materials that we use to build on the foundation of Jesus— it's going to become obvious pretty quick if those are good quality or poor quality, whether they are built properly on the foundation of Jesus or not when the fire tests them. And in verse 12, where he lists those materials, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, there's some debate over why Paul chose these six things. My personal opinion, I don't think it really matters. I think the point is simply the first three would not burn up and the second three would. Paul is saying, hey, look, And all that you do as a congregation and all that you do as a church, as you seek to live out what it means to follow Jesus, build on the foundation and build with good things that will last, not things that are based on the Corinthian culture, things that will be burned up. Because God will judge that. It will be exposed at some point in the future. And in the ESV, in in verse 13, The word the day is capitalized. Why is it capitalized? Well, because the translators are trying to show you that the day, this means the day at the end of time, the day of all days, the day when God will judge all human deeds. When he sets the world to rights, our work that we do for the kingdom that is beneficial will will last, but the work that is done, that is faulty, that is not built on the foundation of Jesus, will be exposed for the fool's gold that it is. And the final point, fifth, the church is a holy community. This is where Paul gets into this last verses 16 and 17, and he changes the metaphor a little bit. But he, what he does in these verses is that he shows that the building that he's discussing here, this image that Jesus is the foundation of, it's not just any building, it's actually a temple. And it's not just any temple, but it's God's temple. It's the temple of the living God. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Again, in Ephesians, Paul uses uh, this metaphor, Ephesians two nineteen to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Family is another uh, metaphor that Paul uses for the church. Not talking about that, but just to say, you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
So this temple, this building is not just a building. It's a temple. It's not any temple. It's God's temple. And that means it's a holy temple. And that means that the church, even a small congregation like ours, the local expression of the church is a holy church, a holy congregation, a holy community. When we think about holiness throughout scripture, and maybe even as I say that word, oftentimes what our mind goes to is right behavior, purity, and some of these things. And Paul does address those things in 1 Corinthians. That's for sure a part of what it means to be a church. We are called as people who follow Jesus to be transformed by Jesus. That's part of the deal. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. So there is an ethical component to holiness. But what I want to think about for a moment before we close is that there's another part of holiness, and it's this idea of being set apart. When you read about God as one who is holy, does that mean he is ethically pure? Yes, but it also means that God is set apart, that he is other, that he is apart from us, that he is not distant because he's also near in a relational way, but he is so different than us, it's hard to describe him. He's, he's set apart. He's just other. He's just different. And there's this set-apartness in the church also because the church is called out to live on mission. That's also part of holiness, that in the Old Testament there were utensils and things in the temple that were called holy. Why? Because they were set apart for a specific purpose, to be a part of the worship and this one element in the temple. They were set apart. They were special and unique in that way. doesn't mean that the spoon— they didn't commit adultery, right? That doesn't make sense. It means that this utensil was set apart. And we also are set apart in this way, called out to live on mission. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Jesus says in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, he says to his disciples, even so I am sending you. We are a sent people, a people sent out to live on mission, called out, set apart for that purpose. And Paul is identifying and reminding the Corinthian church here that being a temple of God means that the community of believers and not the building in Jerusalem, which was still standing when Paul wrote this letter, that the, that the local congregation, that's the place where praise and sacrifices are rightly offered to God. That's the place where worship and ministry happens. It's here. It's among us. It's the church gathered together and the local community there in Corinth and the house churches, whatever. It's not some far off place in the temple in a distant land, but it's right there to worship, to, to minister, to live a set-apart life. There's a late 19th and early 20th century Dutch theologian named Herman Bovink. Great dude. He has like a systematic theology that's four volumes. It's about this thick. It's, a, it's, a, it's honking, but it's great. And he says some beautiful things in there, and he says this about the church. Every local church is and has to be a salvation army that under Christ's leadership fights the devil, the world, and the flesh, and I love this last line, and knows no retired or deactivated soldiers. That knows no retired or deactivated soldiers. That we all have a part in this building up of the church, this building up uh, of the temple on the foundation of Jesus. And this is kind of the point that Paul is driving towards. This is the point that I want to end on and have you walk away with, as we look at these passages, that Paul's desire for unity in the Corinthian church as he fights and pushes back against these leaders, against these, these factions, is not just for the sake of preservation. That Paul isn't simply interested with the fact that this church will exist for forever or, or whatever. But he's, he's interested in, in it 
lasting and, and people being united for the sake of mission. To put it another way, it's not about longevity, it's about legacy. It's about leaving a gospel legacy. See, a community with internal power struggles, division, and cliques like the Corinthian church had is a poor gospel witness to the culture around them. It's a poor witness. But a church that's humble, that's unified, is a powerful witness to the good news of Jesus, to a culture that defaults towards things like our culture, things like power grabbing and tribalism and virtue signaling. In John 17, again, another great, great verse, so instructive in the scriptures for our life as a community, Jesus prays that his disciples would be unified, that they would be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe. It's not just about preservation, but it's about mission. It's not just about longevity. It's about legacy. We're a holy temple that should be on mission, and we need to be united so that that mission can continue to move forward. Let me wrap up here and make one final point that's not directly from this passage, but I think it's important to say here as we're talking about this idea of unity in the, in the church being built up, the temple of God. Harmonious community does not require us to be a homogeneous community. Let's say that again. Those are two different words. A harmonious community does not require us to be a homogeneous community. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing. One of the things I love about Liberty Church Collinswood is that we are a diverse group of people. We're diverse, and I love that. But that does mean that it can be difficult at times to pursue harmony because we're not homogeneous. It can be difficult to pursue unity because we're not uniform. But I actually think it's more beautiful that there's that diversity. I think it's a good witness to our culture. The church in Corinth was made up of diverse men and women, culturally, ethically, socioeconomically, Jesus' disciples were a mixed bunch of personalities. If you go back and look at, at, at the Gospels, the four letters, the four narrative accounts of Jesus' life, the disciples were all over the place. They had different trades, different personalities. They believed some different things. They missed the boat a lot, but they were united. And I think the same is true and can be true of us, that we can have different colored skin tones and different hair textures, and we can be united we can watch different news stations and we can vote for different political candidates and we can be united. And we can disagree about other theological and cultural issues but still be united. We can still be the temple of God and do what God has called us to do, to be on mission. And so Liberty Church Collins, what I challenge you that as we emerge from this COVID-19 pandemic into a world, and I've had this conversation with several people recently, a world that feels more polarized, than 16 months ago, a world that feels more secular, that feels more post-Christian. And as we begin to live together face-to-face as a community of faith, and I love, again, I said this earlier, I love being face-to-face with you again. As we do this again, let's remember who we are and let's remember whose we are, that we are God's field, God's building, God's temple. And with God's help, let's seek to be a fruitful community of Jesus followers who builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ, who pursues unity for the sake of mission, and who makes the gospel beautiful to the outside world through our unity and through our love for one another. I want to end this morning with this prayer. This is from Pope John Paul II, a prayer for unity. Would you hear this prayer as we close? 
Merciful Father, on the night before his passion, your son prayed for the unity of those who believe in him. In disobedience to his will, however, believers have opposed one another, becoming divided, and have mutually condemned one another and fought against one another. We urgently implore your forgiveness, and we beseech the gift of a repentant heart so that all Christians, reconciled with you and one another, will be able, in one body and in one spirit, to experience anew that joy of full communion. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.